Welcome to this edition of the World Stage podcast. Today we are in conversation with Asif Khan on the new agenda for peace. My name is Cedric de Kooning and I'm a research professor at the Norwegian Institute of International Affairs, where I co-direct the NUPI Center on United Nations and Global Governance. And I'm your host today. Our guest today is Asif Khan, the director of the Policy and Mediation Division of the Department of Political and Peacebuilding Affairs of the United Nations. Welcome, Asif. Good to have you at NUPI and great to have you on, on NUPI's The World Stage podcast. Thank you, Cedric. You were visiting us today, but actually you're not a, a guest. You're more like part of the family because uh, you were a visiting fellow here for a few months at the end of 2021 and beginning of 2022. And during that period, you researched and wrote a report that I think is also relevant for our discussion today. Uh, it was on the lessons mediators can learn from the Cambodia peace process in the 1980s. Uh, the report is entitled, When Great Powers Behave, Mediation Lessons from the Cambodia Peace Process. And our listeners can, can Google that and find it on the, on the NUPI website or on the website of the uh, Center for Unitarian Dialogue because we co-published that report. Um, and Asif, we, we're going to talk mostly about the agenda of peace today, but I thought maybe we should start by reflecting on the relevance of the when your, your When Great Powers Behave report also for our discussion today. So can you tell us a bit about some of the main lessons you identified from the Cambodia peace process? And, and is there some advice in those lessons for the kind of uh, mediation and peace challenges we find uh, ourselves in today? Thank you. Thank you, Cedric. Um, I think the, writing that report was instructive for me because it was about an era that uh, was coming to an end, um, which was one of great power rivalry or, or was, as some call it, the Cold War. Um, and the agreement that happened at that time was almost the same time as uh, just a few years later, the Agenda for Peace of, of Boutros Ghali. So, you know, what we're doing today has relevance from the past uh, for us today. And I think um, the Cambodia peace process, uh, fraught as it was, long-standing, long process as it was, uh, showed us a few key lessons. Uh, I think, one, that the international community and the great powers can can find unity and agreement in a process despite and sometimes because of divergent interests. Not everything has to meet and become common between them uh, for an agreement to, to be arrived at. And I think that was quite instructive, and it's ins instructive certainly for our times as we enter perhaps a new phase of, of uh, troubles in international relations. Um, second, I think, you know, it's important to see that in this process in Cambodia, there were several, several, several mediators, uh, several countries, uh, lots of different interests. Uh, this is Cold War politics at its, at its highest. And in a way, um, and now from a UN perspective, I think the absence of a single lead mediator, we often say a, a lead is, is necessary in a, in a process. But in fact, I think the absence of a single lead mediator uh, was not uh, a problem. Uh, it was, in fact, perhaps an advantage because uh, they managed to come together. It's the how they did it, of course, that's important, but uh, a single wasn't really necessary. Um, and I think linked to that is another one, which is that, you know, we often speak in terms of mandates for mediators. Where do you get your mandate from? Do you get it from the Secretary General? Do you get it from an international conference? Do you get it from the Security Council? Um, but again, this was a fairly fuzzy process that ran over for a long time. 
and a formal mandate for the mediator wasn't necessarily required. And it's not necessarily an advantage either. I think dealing with the gray areas, operating in those gray areas can be, can be quite useful. Another um, obvious one um, is, is really about planning. You know, this, this is the, the, the less studied the work or the work that happens in the shadows. So quiet, patient planning, uh, preparation away from the spotlight, I think for which Cambodia was uh, quite useful to understand. Um, I think that can really, really help. It's, it's an obvious thing to say, but it's, 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 uh, it's really important to remember. Um, it's also useful to understand how linkages between different countries that were dealing with this file, but also the different conflicts around them, were handled. Uh, so we're talking about the height of the Cold War. You had uh, war in Afghanistan, you had war in Cambodia, but you also had different uh, troop engagements on different international borders. There were conflicts raging in Central America, in, in certain parts of Africa. And how the big powers handled linkages between these different conflicts, including at the Paris Peace Conference that negotiated the end of the Cambodian conflict is actually quite quite significant. So the big picture stuff really, really does matter. We tend to speak a lot about local stuff now, but getting the big picture right, I think, is quite quite uh, useful. And then there are sort of some very sort of um, I think for for the for the mediation nerds, um, I think the 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 more important one uh, lessons are that you know your your skill matters. That's an obvious, but the mediator's skill really does matter. Having the right resources to run the process matters. And, and sometimes you don't actually need a big team. Sometimes having a small mediation team is, is what gets it, gets it right. And then finally, I think, um, you know, this is really a time um, now when we pay respect to global norms. Um, we did so back then as well. Cambodia is one of the most significant agreements in terms of having human rights clauses and being one of the first major ones to, to, to do so. Human rights does really matter, and mediators that ignore norms, especially on human rights, do so at their own peril. Very interesting to hear how, you know, reflecting back on a process that, that happened back in the 1980s could still uh, bear so much fruit and, and advice and, and interesting perspectives on, on how we deal with uh, peace processes and, and mediation processes today. But um, we wanted to talk about the new agenda for peace today. And uh, I think we will come back to the Cambodia process as well, or, or the lessons from it. But on the agenda for peace, or rather the new agenda for peace, um, this is something that you know everyone in the UN peace and security community is, is eagerly awaiting to be released. And, but there's also, I think, some degree of confusion on, on, on what is the new agenda for peace exactly? Where does it come from and, and what kind of uh, document or process is it? What is it meant to contribute? It's a document uh, that comes straight out of the Secretary General's Our Common Agenda report of 2019. Um, that report, of course, is a wide-ranging document covering different aspects of a lot of the peacemaking, uh, but also wider development and other aspects of the work of the United Nations. And one of the commitments in that is um, that the Secretary General will be issuing a, a report on peace and security, his vision for the peace and security uh, domain or area, um, forward-looking 
bold um, and and with concrete recommendations on how to revive a number of things and how to put new ideas on the table on, on peace and security. So a number of things also, uh, I think, will be derived from the UN 75 declaration that was issued by member states on the 75th anniversary of the United Nations. We've paid close attention to that. So the ambition is really to bring together a number of different peace and security ideas and, and cover them in a way that both looks at new areas, but also provides new ideas about old areas. So why a new agenda for peace right now in 2023? What what are the circumstances that led to the point or what is the policy gap that this new agenda for peace is, is meant to fill? It's a new agenda for peace. Uh, and as a student of history, I can say it's a subtle nod to the agenda for peace of uh, former Secretary General Boutros Ghali of 1992. Um, it has... I think a similar ambition that it wants to present a forward-looking strategic or doctrinal document for the times. It is, of course, at a different time. Uh, 1992 is is really when the world was coming together after the Cold War to lift its ambition in the peace and security arena. We're perhaps at a different uh, time. But I think the ambition is, is certainly similar. Uh, we want to make sure that we provide new ideas on peace and security in this. And the new the newness comes not just from the fact that it's, it's a new report. I think the newness comes from the fact that it is going to try and cover new domains of conflict. So just as our understanding of conflict and peacemaking has changed and expanded, of course, our recognition that there are new conflict domains has also has also grown. That's very interesting to, to think of a kind of a a broadening of uh, what we think is peace and security and how, how that is different today than it, than it was in the past. So what are some of the main issues that uh, the new Agenda for Peace report are likely to, to cover? Um, I mean, I assume you're going to say something about you know, things that was in the old Agenda for Peace, like peacemaking and peacekeeping and peace building. Uh, but there are presumably also new issues that that uh, that will come into this report that wasn't in the in the past. Um, so, can you say a few words about the kind of issues that that will be covered in the new agenda for peace? Sure. Um, I think just as I said that you know our understanding of, of conflict and and peacemaking has has changed. Um, we are also trying to emphasize, as compared to, say, in the Agenda of Peace of 1992, that there are a number of uh, issues that we are that our work is linked to. So the first thing is, of course, development. Um, there, as you know, there's an SDG Summit, a Sustainable Development Goals Summit, in, in, uh, in September 2023. We want to make sure that a new Agenda for Peace buttresses, bolsters, and supports uh, that whole process. We derive much of the intellectual sort of drive um, and ideas in the new gender for peace from SDG 16. That's absolutely essential. It provides both ideas, but also I think an intellectual umbrella for, for much of the, the, the work that's at the heart of a new gender for peace. So you're right to say that, you know, we, uh, we will cover is issues such as peacemaking, peacekeeping, um, peace building, but we will perhaps try to look at them in, in new ways. We will try and look at national capacities, national responsibilities, and by national I mean governments, member states' responsibilities, and how they look at uh, prevention through through some of these areas. But, but in terms of new areas, I should also mention that um, 
we will try and have a better understanding of climate peace and security and climate action and how that links to peacemaking work. That's certainly a new area. An agenda for peace uh, did not cover any climate issues 30 years ago. Uh, we do not have the luxury of doing so. If we are to look at climate change as an existential risk, as, as, as Antonio Guterres has described it. But we will also look at, as you rightly said again, uh, risks and opportunities from, from, the, from new technologies. So AI is changing the world as we speak. I, not just by day by day, but minute by minute. And so we would we would certainly need to explore those areas, but we will also look at uh, cyber risk, cyber attacks, but also outer space. Some of it through the lens of disarmament and having better regulation, um, better control, um, but also under understanding the implications and how they impact on, for instance, um, good offices work and the traditional work of the the the, the UN, which is on mediation or, or or peacemaking. I think both the we need to look at them both from the point of view of opportunity and risk. It's a good thing, and quite often it's a it's a bad thing. So we we want to not throw one thing out with 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 the other, and and that that sort of duality uh, does exist in many of these different areas. I should also mention, of course, that we will make sure that we have a much broader understanding of, but also permeate the report with uh, in issues of inclusion, in particular on women, peace and security and youth, peace and security, really try and understand gender dynamics in a number of these substantive peace and security areas. That's quite interesting because you, you're talking both about a much more comprehensive agenda, but also about engaging in peace process with a much more comprehensive approach. The way you are linking the SDGs and SDG 16 plus with the others, but also the, some of the other issues that you mentioned, I think all, all speak to you know, thinking much more of a peace continuum and thinking much more of, of a broader set of issues. So in that context, are you, to what degree are you also engaging with the development and, and uh, the finance um, human rights, other neighboring areas, if you like, to peace and security, but that contribute to this kind of a comprehensive approach to peace? I think uh, integrated approaches to, to these issues is, of course, uh, essential. It's, it's at the heart of the report. So the, the days when the diplomats did politics, the development experts did development, and so on and so forth, of course, are over. It's also at the same time not an argument for mixing everything up and making it into some giant piece of sludge. Uh, I, I think you know specialization is, is is important, but linkages are even more uh, important. So when you when you look at national prevention plans, of course politics have to be at the core of them, but those plans have to be inclusive and they have to be linked to development policies also, which means that when the governments, um, if under this this new gender are going to report on their national prevention plans, it is important to ensure that there's adequate financing. The financing has to, of course, come from, you know, institutions or bodies such as the Peace Building Fund, but more importantly, the international financial institutions. So what the linkages are to these big uh, financial institutions is going to be critical. And so both a conflict lens as well as a development one will, will be important. We've tried to ensure um, that there's an emphasis on a whole of government approach in, in what we are or what the Secretary General will be asking uh, governments to do, but also a whole of society approach, which, which, which means that, um, 
human rights of course has to be at the at the at the heart of this inclusion is is not just about representation it it, it also is about you know much better much higher respect for human rights and and the associated norms yeah, and you mentioned inclusion and and women peace and security youth um to what degree is it possible for a you know an intergovernmental body like the United Nations and all the attention you have to give to member states and so on to what degree is it possible to also reflect the degree to which these kind of engagement with peace has to be people centered um has to be anchored in in society's whole of society approaches i think we're trying to change uh the debate we're trying to make sure that governments take action for their national plans and it's it's really their national responsibility we're we're trying to see how um they can come up with plans that responsibilize not only themselves but do things both at the the higher level down to the local level that applies to gender that applies to human rights plans but that applies to basically how you you look at quite significantly all forms of violence so violence not just that is that is um created by by conflict but violence such as that caused by organized crime uh that that's caused uh for instance in terms of domestic violence the figures the evidence is is quite stag- staggering frankly um the their 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 numbers are much higher than they are for conflict uh, related violence and i think we would be blind if we were to ignore these sources that are causing the problems that do but at the same time from a political standpoint it's really important that it's national governments that act on this rather than international institutions do you expect a pushback from some on that conceptualization in the sense that they would argue that the un is responsible for international peace and security and that if you start talking about uh violence in such a broad way including you know homicides and and domestic violence and other kind of things that are maybe far away from international peace and security or that is more in the sovereign domain of nation states uh, how do you think uh people will respond to that conceptualization of of violence and the role of the UN in that the UN charter is quite clear it it is concerned with matters of international peace and security there's 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 no question but the moment we start talking about violence human rights development protection um and and i can i can go on of course these are issues that belong within the borders of of countries and societies of course sometimes they have cross border links as well but what we are saying is that in order to understand these as well as to try and respond to them it is national governments that have to take the lead so it's not it's not the un instructing governments that they should do this or that it is governments uh that that have to do so and in these efforts as has been the the track record if you if you if you look at the presence of various un bodies around the world it's really in support of the work of these governments that that we are trying trying to push so it's not it's certainly not to take away the autonomy sovereignty or jurisdiction of the government it's really governments doing this for for themselves through their own national plans and that's how you can look at the expanded definition of of all forms of violence which is at the heart of SDG 16 and which is at the heart of our common agenda from 2019. Very interesting. 
I mean, this context you have sketched, uh, you know, we, we're in a changing global order that is characterized by an increase in the intensity of rivalry among great and, and middle powers. Uh, I mean, this context probably also makes it unlikely that these countries can cohere around one vision for a new agenda for peace. Um, how do you think uh, people are going to respond to the new agenda for peace? Is, is it aimed at achieving a, a, agreement amongst countries? So is there a danger that it may aim for the lowest common denominator? Uh, or, or how do you think the Secretary General wants to position the report? I think that um, we do live in a time of great geopolitical rivalries, certainly a, a lot of divisions. One, one can't deny that. But I think we see in the Security Council, it's easy to criticize Security Council and say that they're divided and they don't get anything done. But what is what is interesting or what is surprising is is actually the amount of business that does get done. So clearly, member states are capable of distinguishing and differentiating between issues that they want to oppose each other on and on, on others that they want to find agreement on. These are, these are at times sensible and out of the times studied choices that they make. So, you know, it is on that basis, they're, they're rational choices. So it is on that basis that we believe that a new agenda for peace uh, from the Secretary General can be a unifying document. There's enough commonality of view there are enough issues on which we have mutual interests in the international community that we can find a way forward. A new agenda for peace, our ambition certainly is going to be that it's a unifying document that brings together the membership on, on, on the principle of cooperation, even in the face of intense competition. You know, we're, we're, not, we're not trying to deny that there's competition. We're not trying to deny that there's division. But there's a lot that can be done still, even within those, within those contexts. And a lot of that, actually all of it, is based on principle and principles. Um, we want to emphasize, of course, common interests, uh, mutual interest, but also speak in terms of the principles of trust, of solidarity, and of universality. Universality is absolutely critical and at the heart of this report. We're not trying to aim for the lowest common denominator. There will be ideas that one set of countries or another set of countries does not like. The idea is not to go for lowest common denominator as in everything is liked by every member state. But we do hope that in the overall sum, there is enough there for the membership to understand that this is going in a, in a positive direction. In this context of you know, uncertainty over the coming uh, decades, uh, and knowing that you know this kind of significant policy report is not something you do every year or every five years or or even every ten years. I mean, the the previous agenda for peace dates back to 1992. Um, how do you design a report like this uh, in a way that it, that you know that it could it has to be relevant for the next let's say two decades at least? I think you design it carefully. <laughs> <laughs> you design it carefully, patiently. And, and and quite honestly, uh, with a lot of consultation, you you talk to a lot of uh, people and entities. So just to just to mention, we've this has been the most consultative process in 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 years. I can I can safely say we've we've had rounds and rounds of consultations with member states bilaterally, but also uh, in multilateral settings, both in the Security Council 
in ECOSOC, uh, but also at the expert level and in the five uh, different regional groups. We've also spoken to civil society organizations all over the world. Having online tools now really helps. You know, a few years ago, it would have been much more difficult. It would have been a logistical nightmare. Um, but now you can you can organize very quickly. And that means that you don't need to just speak to the the civil society organizations, or for that matter, think tanks or academics in, in the West because the UN sits in New York. You can speak to all regions of the world. Um, so we've done that. We've also commissioned uh, some some papers on different ideas from from people from around the around the world. We've received written inputs uh, from member states, um, and they're they're posted on our website on a new agenda for peace website, uh, just to, just to show the the breadth and width of the the ideas. But I guess the danger is that you you speak to all these people and they are worried about issues of today. We come out of a COVID-19 pandemic. We've got the war in Ukraine. Um, how do you make sure that you're also addressing issues that will be relevant 10, 15 years from now? I think um, that's easier to answer now than perhaps in another time because the times we live in, we are so surrounded by new, exciting, fearsome, and not fully understood technologies and and issues so it would be it would be blind on our part to not notice that ai is going to change everything so even if we were super conservative we would still need to respond and i think just having that consciousness means that we do need to look into the future and be able to respond and come up with ideas i i would i would say one thing by the way not all um uh actors we've consulted or countries we've spoken to have only given us ideas for today. I mean, there's there's quite a lot of futurism going on. The critical challenge is to be able to speak about the future, even as we continue to address the, the problems of, of today. Yes, and I wanted to uh, get towards our close of, the, of this uh, discussion precisely by bringing it back to today. I mean, and what difference do you think uh, the new agenda for peace will make for um, let's say your colleagues in the UN Secretariat or, or special envoys or, or peace operations, people that go about peacemaking, peacekeeping every day, um, will it set the tone for a new approach to your everyday work or how do you think this report would be significant uh, in the, in the, for the work of, of the UN system? Um, integration, as I mentioned before, is, is at the heart of this. Uh, networked form of multilateralism, I think, is also at the heart of this. The, the Black Sea Grain Initiative showed that you can use different instruments, different actors, bilateral, multilateral, to work on the work of diplomacy in, in a way that can be quite innovative. It's a small example. Um, we sh we'll see what, ha what happens with it. But I think it's to say that uh, if this report is to work, we have to if it's going to have an impact, it will mean that we will be much more integrated, we'll think less in terms of silos, think less in terms of uh, perfectly separate instruments. It will have to be much more together, even as I think everyone will have to think much more politically and not treat politics as something that's just done as, as one of the dark arts done by just one, one, one side of the house. I do want to say one thing. If it is to work, it's not just the, on the part of the UN. It has to work if member states decide to take this seriously. Above all, this report is about the responsibility of member states and governments to, to you know, take a number of different types of actions. So how they approach the UN, how they engage with each other in the multilateral arena, 
and how they act as responsible citizens within their own national borders is, of course, the most critical thing. That has been a fascinating conversation. Thank you so much, uh, Asif. I'm afraid that's all we have time for in today's podcast. Thank you for visiting Nupi today, and, and we hope to have you back here in a couple of months after the report has been released to, to talk more about the content of the report and how the report is being uh, received. So thank you very much. Thank you, Cedric. Pleasure to be here.